You're listening to Future Ready through M&A. I'm your host, Scott Slater. Today on our show, we're going to talk about independence. So many of us got into wealth management to create something independent, and we value it greatly. But as you consider the future, what does it mean to maintain it when you're looking at various platforms and when you're considering an M&A transaction? Plus, we chat with Marty Bicknell, CEO and president of Mariner Wealth Advisors. He helped to found Mariner, and we'll ask him about how it's grown and what he sees in the future for the field. We'll also be able to talk to him about his perspective on what it means to be independent and how advisors should consider it in the future. One of the books that I found very influential in my career a good 25 years ago is a book written about Jack Welsh, the former CEO of GE, who did such a tremendous job, controversial at times, but tremendous job of turning around GE into a real powerhouse that was quite successful from a stock market and valuation standpoint from the 1980s to the early 1990s, in, actually until 2000. He ran it for over 20 years. This book came out in, uh, in the mid-90s, and it was about a lot of his experience over the first 12 years, and it was entitled Control Your Destiny or Somebody Else Will, which frankly is taken directly from one of his first principles about what it means to be successful. And while it's, as Machiavellian as that might sound, I think that overarching message is very important for any industry because there's change happening around us. One of the things that I see with so many of the advisors with whom I've worked over the years is that advisors are very proud of their independence and what it's done for them. But at the same time, because that's been made people successful in where they've gotten, they need to begin to think about the future of where they're going to be, not just a year from now, but three or four or five years from now, based on not only what they want and their age and the people in their own organization, but what's going on with the industry, how investors are changing in their behavior, how technology is having an impact on the business, compliance, some of the demands for uh, better branding and marketing to be able to position the business more effectively and how the whole value proposition is changing within wealth management. And I think Jack Welsh's lessons are very effective. He looked further out, further out for where things were going. He said, we have to be number one or number two in our industry, or we're going to get out of that business. Now, his was a large conglomerate with a worldwide footprint, but ultimately it helped them to focus more effectively on where they're really good. And I think that whole message plays well to the advisory business, too. Where are we really good? And I think that's why there are opportunities today for firms to partner with platforms that are emerging, such as we wrote about in in our uh, most recent report at, at Fidelity on insights on capital sources and independence, where we really see that many of the uh, private equity and private investor models are helping to build better platforms and effectively taking some of those difficult challenges of building technology, of creating scale, of building out the marketing elements, all of the stuff that create an effective business, you're getting help from a platform. And I think that's ultimately thinking where this business is going forward is is such a key part of it. Then it's about, you know, I think having a vision for where you want your own business to be and how you see yourself fitting into an increasingly competitive environment and how that's going to be changing. And we're going to be speaking today to an individual who has done a great job of not only forming a business and building it organically, which is so critical, but also building it inorganically and periodically taking apart the business and re-architecting it going forward. And I think that's what I encourage advisors to really consider is where do they want to take their business over the next number of years and how do they plan to be not only surviving, but a truly sustainable, thriving business in three or four years? 
what kind of leadership they need to bring to the equation, what role do people want to play as they move from practice to business? Do they want to be a practitioner serving clients directly, which is what how they started, or are they really enjoying the, the challenge of building a business and want to be able to play an ever bigger and more impactful role on this? That's what I think it means to be controlling your destiny. It's beginning to form a vision and a clear sense of what matters most to advisors, to the people that are leading these firms as they begin to think about their future, and then putting plans in place through conversations, through understanding what the business will look like, for considering what your options are, and then beginning to take action and move forward. Our guest for this episode of the show is Marty Bicknell, CEO and President of Mariner Wealth Advisors. With a group of seven others, Marty founded Mariner in 2006. When we sat down to chat, the first thing I asked him about was how Mariner achieved such explosive growth since its beginning. Well, Marty, it's great to have you on the show today. Our topic today is on controlling your destiny. You know, I was struck by a book that was written about Jack Welsh, uh, the former CEO at GE, Control Your Destiny or Somebody Else Will, which I think was one of his main principles. I'd love to hear a little bit about how you see that, because you've built a phenomenal business over the last 10, 11 years. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the business at Mariner? Great, Scott. I'd be happy to, and and thanks again for having me. So Mariner is just a little over 12 years old. Uh, we were founded in 2006. We started the company with seven other individuals who left a regional firm called AG Edwards. And, you know, fast forward to today, we have over 500 employees, roughly about $25 billion. We're in 20 locations, 20 different cities. And, you know, a lot of our growth um, has been traditional organic growth. But in addition to that, we've grown through acquisitions. And one of the things that, that we talk a lot about is that aspect of growth. The most important piece of that to us is the culture component. And so just making sure that we're bringing in the right people who believe in the, the common themes that we do, therefore kind of, you know, cementing the fact that, that we will control our own destiny. There are many competitors in our field of independent wealth management and asset management, which have grown very effectively over the last number of years. But you've been bounds above many of them in terms of the pace of your growth. Why do you think you've been able to grow uh, so quickly and so effectively? I think one of the things that, that we've done that has really helped that is we, we think about our, our business in a couple different components. So if you think of having three buckets, we have our traditional wealth bucket, which is primarily planning-based. Understanding the importance of investments is important, but understanding that it's a piece of wealth planning. And so making sure that we're really focused on the planning aspect. A second piece of the bucket is the asset management side. So we own an asset management firm that has specialty themed opportunistic style investments in them that aren't, you know, kind of core that really has helped us differentiate. And the third bucket we call advisory solutions, which is things that help our advisors do their job for their clients. So tax preparation, 
trust services, insurance. We have a boutique investment bank so we can help our clients with closely held businesses through their own succession planning. So, you know, bringing all those different components to the table so advisors can really do that great, offer that great client experience is really what we focused on. But I think probably most important is being able to have an organic sales methodology so that if we're talking to you know advisors across the country regardless of if we're looking at just hiring or recruiting or even acquisitions to be able to show them and prove out how we can help them grow organically post joining us has really propelled us forward from that perspective well, I, I agree with you so much on that. So many firms I worked with in my role as a business consultant over the last decade or so start to turn to inorganic growth strategies when the organic growth is getting hard or, or dries up. Uh, how have you been able to strike that balance, and what's your perspective on how much inorganic growth should be there? I know you've made a few changes even over the last few years in terms of, of your balance there between organic and inorganic. Why don't you say a little bit about that? Yeah, I think from the inorganic perspective, for us, it's more about managing it from adding the right people and and not doing it just to do it, right? So making sure that the cultural aspect is there, the right fit from the client experience piece of it's there. You know, those components are obviously really important. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, our competitors out there that I believe sometimes are motivated just to get things done. And that's not the approach that, that, that we've taken. You know, I think that as you balance that and you ask the, the question of, of the inor- inorganic piece and balancing that with the inorganic, for me, being able to prove that we can grow organically is the most important aspect. If we can't do that, then doing an acquisition doesn't make sense for us because there's no, we call it rule 113. There's no one plus one equals three. If we can't find these great partners and help them grow, then then the acquisition doesn't bring that rule 113 opportunity. Sure, exactly. There's no, where's the leverage in, in all of that and uh, and how you really drive it? Yeah, that's exactly right. I know one of the things you've said, you have a what you call a sprinter's mentality. Let's go and, and uh, do a number of transactions. Let's bring some people together. But I think you've been very attentive to making sure that I really am delivering on the promises that I've made to drive that organic growth and to create the platform that's necessary. And there's a lot of talk about platform uh, strength. T- say a little bit about what you have been doing to make sure that happens and how you strike that balance between aggressive acquisitions, which you certainly are showing, and actually um, executing it effectively. You know, a lot of times it all depends on on just the opportunities and the people you meet and, and how that happens from a, from a timing perspective. We've had years, you know, like back in 2012 where, where we made four acquisitions in a relatively short period of time. And then we've gone, you know, 18 and maybe even coming up on 24 months without making an acquisition. And over our history, sometimes that's been because of timing, right? Just not having the right opportunity at the right time. But then there's also been times that that I think you're getting at where we've specifically said we are taking the next six, nine, 12 months off. 
And even if we have those right partners that we want to bring on during those time frames, it's a simple conversation to have with them that just lets them know that we've onboarded X number of advisors and clients, you know, over a short period of time. And it's not fair to them to bring them on right now because of the integration not going perfectly. And without fail, 100% of the time, they get that, appreciate that, and and want to wait for us. So it's just understanding how much pressure you can put on your team, how much they can you know handle and integrate at once, and giving them, some people say giving them the freedom to let us know. But I say it differently. I feel like they have the obligation of letting us know that they're at full capacity from an integration standpoint. That way we keep our promises to our partners. Before I move on to the subject a little more and to get into this idea of controlling your destiny, you mentioned the issue of culture. And I hear that, of course, a lot and have many of those discussions. But a lot of times I find it to be a rather vague concept. Could you put a little meat around that for us and and describe what you are looking for and uh, how that shapes a business like yours? Yeah, I'll do my best. I mean, as you said, it is, it's vague. It's difficult to explain. But the way I like to think about it is through the acquisition process, in my mind, you can put 95, maybe even 99% of an acquisition on a spreadsheet and get a black and white answer. What you cannot get a black and white answer on is culture. And for me, the only way to figure it out is for me personally to spend a great deal of time with the leaders of the organization we're considering. And it's called a gut check, call it, you know, whatever you want, but it's spending that time with them so that you can understand whether or not that relationship and partnership is going to be what you think it it should be three, four, five years down the road. And, you know, this may sound awkward, but I always think about it from the perspective of, are these individuals that I want to have at my house for dinner? If I struggle with that answer, then it's not the right cultural fit for us. That's actually a great rule of thumb to, to begin with. I know a number of years ago you told me um, when you were uh, probably early on in a lot of your acquisitions back in even 2012, I think you said you did a, about four acquisitions, but you probably talked directly to the principals of about 200 firms over that period of time. Can you say a little bit more then about what made the difference between the ones you, because I'm sure many of them would have been a great fit in terms of the economics within Mariner, but uh, how did you make your decisions um, in, what, in terms of what you were looking for? Yeah, in 2012, 13, and 14, we did uh, seven acquisitions. Over that three-year period, we visited with, or I personally visited with, 200 firms per year. So 600 firms to do seven acquisitions. I used the term firm a little loosely. They could be three or four-man teams, but the piece of the story still holds. And 75% of those firms, financially, we could have done a transaction, and I believe they would have chose us. The difference was truly the cultural aspect. You know, we have a strong philosophy at Mariner that says the client comes first, our employees come second, and the shareholder comes last, specifically in that order. And, you know, I, we also, you know, you notice I did not say the shareholder comes third. I said the shareholder comes last, which means there's a third, fourth, fifth, and so on that comes after that, that we want to make sure that if you're focusing on keeping your clients and keeping your people, everything else really just works out. And not a lot of people can buy into that culture. 
Um, and then therefore that is a, a self-selection that, that removes them from our process. Let's delve into a little more into this idea about advisors and uh, firms controlling their destiny and what that means. My perspective is that independence, which has been such a powerful instrumental driver to what's created our business, is changing. It's it's harder and harder to be a small player. As a matter of fact, one of the data points I find so fascinating from Cerulli, I believe it's 77% of the RIA firms are $100 million or less, but they represent about 10% of the assets. And on the other end, about 6% of the firms have over half a billion and represent about 70% of the assets under management in the industry. So that really creates quite a, a dynamic of can you be a, an independent business and, and where do you, first of all, where do you see that going? Independence is still, I think, very possible today, but how do you see that playing out over not just the next year, but the next three, four, five years? So I think that you're right in that perspective and the, the independence, I think, is, I mean, it's here to stay, it will continue to grow. I think about it from, from really kind of two different perspectives. If you think about the perspective that firms have or that the, the typical RIA founder has, most of the RIA founders got into the business because they wanted to serve clients, right? They wanted to be elbow to elbow with clients across the table from them and help them achieve their goals. They're good at it, and so they grew. And then they kind of hit a point where now they're coming into the office and they're dealing with HR issues or regulatory concerns or technology issues or you name it. And, you know, it's taken them away from, you know, why they came into the business. And so, you know, I kind of think about the question even flipped upside down. In order for them to control their own destiny, I think a lot of firms have decided they need to find a partner that can help them with all of those things so that they can return their focus back to the client. And therefore, that does lead them to control their own destiny. Because if you think about the business, I mean, the people that control the client relationship have all the control over their destiny. Sure. And I think that's a helpful perspective. How do you distinguish then between And I can understand this desire for autonomy versus a more collaborative mindset. Uh, How do you advise uh, some of the people who are listening to our, our message on that? I think that within reason, it's between people's ears, meaning that I'm sure there are platforms that exist, well, I know there are, we all, we all know of some, that want to deliver a Starbucks solution or a McDonald's solution where it's exactly the same way each time, no matter where it is, no matter what advisor is, and advisors may feel they lose that autonomy. You know, in our model, the way we look at things is if we are bringing those advisors on board, it's because we've bought off on their client experience. We believe their client experience is unique and solid and causing the right experiences or outcomes, causing the right outcomes for for those clients. So once we get to that point, after we bring them into our organization, we don't want to mess with that. What we want to do is integrate everything other than that. And so I like to give the example of thinking about it like a play. So there's a front stage and there's a backstage. We want our advisors to be front stage as much as they possibly can and just know and trust that everything behind that curtain is going to be done and be done right so that they can focus on the client experience. And to me, that's where 
the majority of the advisors we talk to, when they say they want autonomy, that's what they're talking about. They're not as focused on if somebody uses Salesforce or not, or what back office operating system you use. It's all about that experience. No, I think you're right. I, I do remember having worked with a few firms, which perhaps were a little too loosely organized, and I'd like to bring up the subject of, of governance and autonomy and decision-making. And one of the things that uh, I, I know they actually even talked about is, well, I don't want to use their portfolio management system. I want to use the one I'm using. But they couldn't really give me a clear answer as to how that was going to set them apart. But I think it was just the desire to have a little bit of that control. Do you still find that when you're talking to some of the firms that have approached you or that you've identified as candidates? So that's specifically for the portfolio management system. We we don't have many or any any of the yeah, yeah any of the technologies or or some of those back office elements. Yeah, we really don't. I think there's a significant portion of you know of the advisor community that understands that so much of those things are commodities, and that so many of them now look like each other, have the same capabilities. It just may be a different color. And they realize that the uniqueness is in their ability to deliver advice. Sure. Well, it, actually, I do see that increasingly that advisors understand it. And I love your front stage, backstage analogy. And using that a little bit, t- talk to us about your perspective on branding. Because I know we've had some conversations about this. And I think in the beginning, I think you gave some degree of uh, autonomy on whether they took on the Mariner brand. But I think over time, they've seen a different perspective on that. Or maybe you have. How do you see branding as, as a key influencer? I will lump branding in with some of the back office services we just, we just talked about and, and kind of start the story from the perspective of, as you alluded to, we used to go out and, and tell people that we have a library, that our back office operating system, you know, the branding, Salesforce, all the different components were on a shelf and they could choose to pull down a book or not pull down a book. Over time, what we've realized, and this has actually been very frontline driven, so it's been our advisors and our advisory firms leading us there, is to understand that that just confuses the environment. It can it confuses their advisors. It confuses the end client. So that's led us to today, there's no more library. And everything is, you know, is kind of a one mariner. So we have everyone will be on the same operating system and everyone will have the same brand. And what really led us to that specifically from the branding ex- question that you asked us is we separate business development from advice. And so we have dedicated business development professionals out in the marketplace driving opportunities to our advisors. All of those business development people carry a Mariner Wealth Advisors card. And as they would bring opportunities to firms that maintain their own brand, that was creating confusion with clients and with opportunities. And so it was because of that organic growth component that we talked about early on being such a driver for people choosing us, it was an easy decision for people to understand, well, because of that, the common brand, the common theme there makes all the sense in the world. You know, many of the advisors I speak with, I think they understand, at least intellectually, everything you're talking about. But some of them either had the experience or they know someone who has, who's been part of a large organization and feel like they get lost as a number or it feels a bit bureaucratic, or they've come out of that dynamic. 
What's your advice to them in terms of how they should look at potential partners? What should they consider as they think about their future as a business? You know, one of the first things that, that we always recommend potential partners do is talk to our existing partners. So talk to people that, that were our first couple of acquisitions and some of that was our most recent acquisitions to kind of get, you know, the differences in, in that perspective of, of being here a little bit longer, but still coming in inorganically. And what their experience is, you know, what our experience on keeping our promises and, and doing those types of things with them. That's helped me because it's one thing for me to be able to tell those potential partners that, but it's another when they hear it from people that we've already brought on board. I think that the other aspect that's really important to this is every firm's got goals and objectives and, and budgets and targets that they put out every year. Well, for us, goal number one and goal number two are always retention. So goal number one is retain our clients. Goal number two is retain our advisors. The easiest way to retain a client is to retain your advisor. So we spend a great deal of effort and energy making sure we keep our people. And because of that effort and energy, the feeling kind of lost and feeling as a number is something that we haven't encountered yet. Well, that's great because you've shown phenomenal growth in, what is it, 20-something, 26 cities, I believe. I think that's a, quite a testament to being able to feel local and small at the same time with the benefit of being large and uh, of substantial. And that's, that's well done. Say a little bit, Marty, then about as an advisor is going through this thought process about what's important to them, how would you advise them to think about the choices they're making, about what role they're playing, about what part they want to have in the business, and also where do they want to take their business and that of you know, their fellow employees and their clients? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, as as you think out, you know, all the different opportunities that that those advisors get to make, there's a lot of great choices. Mariner Wealth Advisors just happens to be one of them. As you stated, I think rule number one should be to have a lot of conversations so that you can proactively and purposefully make that list for yourself of what's important. In doing that, I mean, there's obviously lots of different, you know, ways that that can go. But what we've noticed is, as you know, this space is extremely fragmented. And there is, you know, num- the, the number of firms that are, you know, sub a billion dollars is, is a significant number. And we have found that the majority of those individuals leading those firms want to continue to train and develop talent and spend time with clients. And, you know, solving for that is easy. If the answer is something other than that, there are firms and places that want those individuals as well. It's just not Mariner Wealth Advisors. You know, that's consistent with our most recent Fidelity M&A series that we did on insights on capital sources and, and independence, where we really talked about the, you know, one of the key best practices is alignment of interests. Because I hear a lot of that from from key people like yourselves, that there, you have to be aligned between buyer and seller in terms of what you're building and move in the same direction. I think that's a really positive positive step. Is that how you're seeing it today, that they're more... I mean, I think that's partly why I think you've spent so much time talking to so many firms to find the right fit, is to make sure that there truly is alignment around what you're trying to build. Yeah, that is exactly correct. And, and, and a lot of times, the individual's 
start the process not really knowing and understanding what they really want out of the process. So, you know, they're, they're doing it from the perspective of they're trying to do the right thing for their people and the right thing for their client and maybe solve succession. That, you know, they read about it in, you know, in publications and they just see there's a lot of talk about it. As I said before, we, we encourage them to spend a lot of time with us, to ask us a ton of questions, but to go outside of just us as well. And, you know, talk to other firms that are being acquisitive as well, as well as, you know, investment bankers in the industry so that, you know, they can truly get a broader perspective and really understand what they want. You know, we, we've spent a lot of time kicking back and forth with, with firms and, you know, we've come to the conclusion that we don't thrive on the competitive process of doing formal bids through investment banking firms. But on the other side of that, we require everyone we talk to to hire an investment banking firm because we want to make sure that they have that expertise on their team so that they can truly exercise the theory of kicking a bunch of tires, if you will. Sure. And I think it helps to also strike a, a good balance between the emotion of having an opportunity to sell a business or partner with someone and kind of the rational and intellectual and analytical piece and perspective that you need so that a third party really, like an investment banker, can really help a lot, I think, uh, in that area. You've been a, such an integral part to the M&A, the Fidelity M&A Leaders Forum, which we formed three years ago. Can you say a little bit about the impact it's had on you and uh, some of the interactions that we've had through our meetings and, and some of the, the content that we've developed for uh, the marketplace? And, and where do you see that all going in terms of how it's helping our industry? Yeah, I think, I think it's been a great experience. Um, it is definitely exceeded my expectation. You know, I really wasn't sure what to think about it um, in the beginning. But I will tell you, you know, just from, you know, number one, just a relationship standpoint, it's one thing, you know, this is a relatively small industry. Most of the players know each other. But to be able to have that kind of environment and platform to continually deepen those relationships in a way that is structured, using the term structured, you know, as a positive element in that, you know, we've got formal ways that that we talk through what's transpiring in the industry and what's been working and what hasn't been working. And what's interesting about the group, while there may be representation in the group that have similar models, there's really no two models that are exactly alike. That's a great observation, too. That's one of the things I still find fascinating is as much as this industry is going through a period of at least maybe not consolidation yet, but concentration, what amazes me is there's still room for emerging models that are very different from each other trying to strive to do the same thing in, a, in an important service business. So I think it's an exciting time to be in the industry. Marty, that brings me to um, a question around something that I think is very near and dear to you, which is around leadership. And I think that's also a key part of why, frankly, you've been so successful in not only building Mariner, but reshaping it a few times and, and rethinking that. So talk to us a little bit about how you see leadership playing out and what, again, what advisors should be either trying to do themselves or what they should be looking for as they consider leadership in moving a business forward? Well, for me, the, the, the leadership question, you know, is, is one that I talk about a lot with, with advisors. I think that there's different ways 
to impact an organization from a leadership standpoint. And, you know, really what I look to our, you know, advisor leaders to focus on is the next generation. From my perspective, you know, we, we, there's been lots of reports and Fidelity talks about it a lot that, you know, the aging advisor and the lack of youth coming into the business. And so, you know, getting advisors at a certain stage in your career to focus on the next generation the rejuvenation that we see in those advisors is hard for me to explain. It's hard for me to really articulate the impact that's had on our organization. It's almost some kind of elixir that they've taken and in, in their perspective on the business and growing the firm and helping those next generation individuals out is, it has been unbelievable. So, you know, from a leadership standpoint, having individuals focus on that. But then I think just personally from a from a leadership standpoint, you know, I think that, you know, one of the things that I like to spend my time on is trying to think about what our firm should look like two, three, four years from now and driving those changes as frequently as I can. And so, you know, we change things around Mariner Wealth Advisors on a very constant, consistent occasion. And, you know, a lot of times from outsiders looking in, it may, it may seem like too much change too often. From my seat, and I think from the majority of, of our other leaders' seat, you know, that couldn't be farther from the truth. That changes what really attracts people to stay with us and attracts people to join us. You know, what you're really outlining there is I think you're, you're trying to really set and articulate and reinforce, repeat a vision for where you're taking the business. And I think everyone is attracted to, to understanding that, and I think you do a great job of it. It actually brings me back to the book I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation on Jack Welch, on, you know, which is entitled Control Your Destiny or Somebody Else Will. I think a couple of the principles that he had in there were around setting a vision that's not just a year out, and I think our industry often is short-sighted on that. It's looking out three, four, five years, and not just where I want the business to be, but where do I think the industry is going to be? which I think is so critical. And I think you bring a lot to that as you look at it, both in, you know, and you mentioned before you have three buckets. And I think um, you're trying to build not just advisor talent and asset management talent, but also, I think, platform uh, capabilities that are unique and really set you apart. Uh, anything you want to say to that? You know, I think that perspective is how we kind of think about things. You know, if we this industry, especially the wealth side of the business, is such a people business. Regardless of if that's people facing the client or people facing the advisor, you know, the same mentality is true. So we talk a lot about in our internal departments, you know, operations, um, you know, finance, technology, marketing, HR, you know, compliance, that we have to focus on really servant leadership, right? We have to focus on our advisors as if they're our clients in figuring out the best way to help them achieve their goals. So if the client achieves their goals, the advisor achieves their goals, as I said before, the rest just works out. It's a fairly simple equation. Yeah, I think that's a great observation. So as we close, one of the things uh, that today we're seeing is this is very much from a seller's standpoint, it is a seller's market and valuations are high. And, and yet I think, as, as I saw a number of years ago, when markets were great too, a lot of advisors held back thinking, I'll do this at a later time. 
Number one, what's your advice as far as what you see out there today in terms of what all advisors should be considering in terms of, of where they're taking their businesses and whether it's time to find a partner? And number two, what are just give us a few, two or three practical steps to help them get started uh, on this path. Well, to answer, to answer your first question, it is obviously a, a very personal decision. There's really no blanket answer on whether or not now's the right time. I think if it is something that is ultimately the objective or ultimately something that will be highly considered, now is a great time to at least have the conversations. Because of the valuation piece of it that you mentioned, because of the amount of dollars that are chasing this space, at a minimum, figuring out whether or not that is the ultimate objective or not, those conversations should be had today. The second part of your question, you know, what steps should you take? I think I mentioned it earlier. I think it's start having conversations. In my mind, before you can even kind of start your list of things that that you must have and your list of things that you must not have, before that can even be a very thorough list, you have to have conversations. And, you know, whether you do that individually, whether you try to do it at conferences, I don't think that matters as much as just truly making sure that you're talking to as many people you can specifically about how deals are done. Great. You know, one of the things I'm hearing out of that, too, is have a sense of what you want your destiny to look like, because it's pretty hard to control if you don't know what it's going to look like. So form that vision by having a lot of conversations. That's great advice. Marty, I really want to thank you for some excellent insight. It's really helpful to hear the tremendous wisdom that you bring to this and, and the lessons you've learned from building your own business so successfully over the last 12 years. So I want to thank you very much for participating with this and, and also for being such an influential and active part of not only the M&A marketplace broadly, but uh, being part of our M&A, Fidelity M&A Leaders Forum, where you've been such a tremendous help. So thank you very much. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Marty Bicknell, CEO and President of Mariner Wealth Advisors. Well, that's it for us on this episode of Future Ready through M&A. I'm Scott Slater, and we're Future Ready. Future Ready Through M&A is a production of Fidelity's Clearing and Custody Solutions with help from Collective Next. Got a question or a comment? Get in touch at fidelitymainsights at fmr.com. For more on the work on the number of firms in this space developed by Fidelity Investments, analysis was completed in 2017, identifying all $1 billion plus firms in the registered advisory space. This information is current as of the recording of this interview, June 9, 2018. For more information on the Cerulli Report, you can look at pages 55 through 70 and 79 through 84 of the Advisor Metrics 2017, The Next Generation of Planning, published in December 2017. Data is 2016 data. Control Your Destiny or Someone Else Will was published by New York Doubleday in 1993, written by Noel Tishy and Stratford Sherman. Any reproduction, transcription, or rebroadcast of this content are forbidden without explicit permission. The content provided herein is general in nature and is for informational purposes only. This information is not individualized and is not intended to serve as primary or sole basis for your decisions, as there may be other factors you should consider. Fidelity's Clearing and Custody Solutions does not provide financial or investment advice. You should conduct your own due diligence and analysis based on your specific needs, unless otherwise disclosed to you. 
In providing this information, Fidelity is not undertaking to provide impartial investment advice or to give advice in a fiduciary capacity in connection with any investments or transactions described herein. Fiduciaries are solely responsible for exercising independent judgment in evaluating any transactions and are assumed to be capable of evaluating investment risks independently, both in general and with regard to particular transactions and investment strategies. Fidelity has a financial interest in any transaction that fiduciaries and, if applicable, their clients may enter into if involving Fidelity's products or services. The third-party providers listed herein are neither affiliated with nor an agent of Fidelity and are not authorized to make representations on behalf of Fidelity. Their input herein does not suggest a recommendation or endorsement by Fidelity. This information was provided by the third-party providers and is subject to change. The content provided and maintained by any third-party website is not owned or controlled by Fidelity. Fidelity takes no responsibility whatsoever, nor in any way endorses such content. There is no form of legal partnership, agency affiliation, or similar relationship among an investment professional, the third-party service providers, and Fidelity Investments, nor is such a relationship created or implied by the information herein. Companies named are for illustrative purposes and are not a recommendation to buy or sell the securities of the companies discussed. Third-party trademarks and service marks are the property of their respective owners. All other trademarks and service marks are the property of FMR LLC or its affiliated companies. Fidelity Institutional Asset Management, FIAM, provides registered investment products via Fidelity Distributors Company, LLC, and institutional asset management services through FIAM, LLC, or Fidelity Institutional Asset Management Trust Company. Fidelity Clearing Custody Solutions registered trademark provides clearing, custody, and other brokerage services through National Financial Services, LLC, or Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, members NYSE SIPC, 200 Seaport Boulevard, Z2B1, Boston, Massachusetts, 02210. Copyright 2018 FMR LLC. All rights reserved. 848006.17.0.